This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. Welcome to Journey of Life number 10. This is going to be our final class on the Sefer Archos Yesher. Uh, we're going to actually deviate tonight a little bit, which I'll explain in a minute, from specifically staying on the Sefer. I'll talk about that in a minute, but tonight's going to be the last time that we're going to um, deal with Sefer Archos Yesher in this series called Journey of Unity. For those of you who have not yet joined our WhatsApp group, we have a WhatsApp group called tinyurl.com forward slash Rabbi Epstein, and you can join our WhatsApp group. Um, I also just want to throw out there that this past week, it was not on this platform, but on YouTube, for those of you who have access, um, on your filtered, uh, kosher, monitored phones, um, my wife and I were interviewed by Living L'Chaim, um, Inspiration for the Nation. So if you did not check that out, I would encourage you to do that. We try to do it in a way where there was a lot of pieces of information, not just like our life story. Um, so feel free to check that out. Baruch Hashem so far. It's been, been very nice. Um, besides for that, we have two books, which I always mention, Family Purity and The Dating Book, which are both flying off the shelves. So if you didn't get your copy, you could get that at feldheim.com or amazon.com or your local farm stores. That's those two books. Next thing I am here to tell you, two more things, okay? One more thing is um, on tour anytime. I recently learned that you can follow a series or you can follow a speaker. So I just want to throw out there if you have not yet followed, click that follow button. So now on tour anytime, the new tour anytime website, which is a beautiful, beautiful website, they allow us to see our statistics, which is very dangerous because it just starts to create like it starts playing with your mind. But the minute I saw it, I was like, oh, some numbers will look very nice. And then I saw Rabbi Wallerstein's numbers. And I think he has eight and a half million views on his, not on one class, on a bunch of classes. And I was like, whoa. Okay, so that's that's our target right now, to get to eight and a half million views. Um, and he has like 11,000 followers or something along those lines. Um, but if you have not followed um, Torah Anytime, it allows you to keep up to date with any classes that are coming out. And you can find out about that as well. Um, so that's that. And there's also a comment section, which I'll address in a second. Now, just again, last thing over here on this topic is that we are starting a new series in Mitzvah Shem in two weeks from now. We're going to be dealing with life lessons from the weekly parsha based on the Medrash. And that is going to start every other week along with the Journey of Unity series. And then when that series ends around Pesach time, then we're going to do it weekly um, right here every Wednesday night at 9 o'clock. So that is the plan as it stands right now. A class followed by Q&A, discussion, whatever, whatever pops up. Okay, so that is the plan for this series. Now, tonight's class is the last of this Arches Yesher series. And I want to give you something maybe very different than we've ever done before. Something which hopefully will, you know, leave somewhat of an impact. Um, you know, I was thinking, I was thinking that we're going through the Sefer Arches Yesher. And what struck me was, I don't know necessarily that Rechaim says this straight out, but if you think about what, the whole picture of what Rebbe is trying to, to teach us. And I think this goes really to the concept of the journey of, of Midos series, really, I would say the journey of unity series, something that Rabbi Berkowitz, my Rebbe, always talks about these two words. Like if you could sum up Rabbi Berkowitz's teachings in two words, these are his two words, be big. That's why Berkowitz is saying, be big. And then, you know, your marriage should be big. Your Midos should be big. Your Yiddishkeit should be big. Your relationships should be big. That those two words I think encapsulate Rabbi Berkowitz's teachings in in a very profound way. And a few years ago, I was talking to somebody in the business world, 
And he said to me, you know, what do you think about the book? And this is not an endorsement, but I think everybody should read this book. Hey, it's called The Magic of Thinking Big. And I was like, I, that sounds like something that would fit very much in line with Herbert Berkowitz's teachings. So I went through this book and literally, you know, folded down every other page. Now they're not folded down anymore because a lot of people have borrowed this book. But this book to me was a very big game changer in terms of my own mindset and, and just transformative ways of thinking. Rather than thinking like in a small way, I'll call it in a business world, it, it just expands your horizons. And I think it's not just pertaining to the business world. I think it pertains to really everything. And tonight, I want to present, present you with what I would call a summary of many of these makshavas that come out of this book, but also tied loosely to various you know, aspects of people's lives. And for those of you who are watching this on Torah anytime, I'm going to ask you a favor, which is that if you could go, I'm sure I'll just say it like this. I think everything that you know we talk about when the source is not specifically from a medrash or from a gemara, the end of the day is the Torah has everything in it, and I don't think there's any question about that. As you go through some of these ideas, some of them I think off the top of my head I could think of a makar for this. Oh, this is like the story of Yaakov and Esau, or this or that or whatever. Uh, but a lot of things it's not like that. A lot of things you know I think you have to like sort of delve into it. And it's interesting because I saw from this Living L'chaim interview that people were sending me messages with like Safario links. Safari is where like the whole Tyra is like on the internet. So people are sending me links. Oh, when you said this and this and this, it really comes from this and that. And I'm like, okay, I'm like scrolling through all these links of people sending me like the Makar for everything. So if, if you're watching this on Torah anytime and something pops into your head, oh, this one of these ideas, you know, I can think of where the Makar for this would be. I would really love for people to post that. So this way we could all share you know, where this comes from in Chazal. So tonight I want to share with you 18 transformative life ideas. That's what I'd like to present to you. Now, many years ago, when I started learning Pirkei Avos, so the, one of the first Mishnahs says, Shemin HaTadik Aymer, Ashleisha Devar Ma'ilam Aymed, Al HaTayra, Val Aveda, Val Yer, Vial, Val Gimilas Lasadim. Very good. Taira Aveda and Gimilas Lasadim. And one of the Mepharshim explained that the concept of Taira Aveda and Gimilas Lasadim is really broken down into the three ways that a person processes information, which is what, what he calls herher, dibor, and maisa. Okay, Taira is, is your mind, avayda, which is tefillah, which is really like speaking things out, and gemilasasadim is the things that you, that you do. And the concept was that every person's world, every individual, their world stands on thinking something through and then speaking about it, and then that thing becomes action. And I think we all have done this for good and for bad. If you see, let's say, a new coat or something that's very enticing to you, you first, you think about it and, and you're just like thinking about it and you're like, nah, no, nah. And then like you turn to your friend and you're like, oh, what coat do you wear? Like, you know, you just start like schmoozing, right? Like kicking it a little bit to see whatever. And then before you know it, like you ordered it. We all go through this in our, in our minds where our mind is the first portal of accessing, of accessing the information. And then our mouths go ahead and, you know, talk about it. And then it's the action itself. So tonight I want to break up these concepts into those three things. Machshava, hear her, like thinking through something. The second thing is going to be Dibor, talking about those things. And then the third thing is going to be Misa, actually carrying out those things. Okay, here we go. So we're going to go one through 18. 18 uh, life-changing ideas in how to think big in your life. So here we go. Okay, first idea is that a person's brain, most of us, I think, would agree that probably one of the biggest problems today is that we do what we do because we do what we do. 
right? As they say in accounting, it's a dilly, which means do it like last year, right? Or do it as last year, dilly dally. We do, we dilly dally. We just copy and paste. And the first concept is that a person has to step in their brain into the driver's seat of their life. If you don't step into the driver's seat of your life, then most likely your life is just going to progress according to whichever way the winds are blowing or according to whichever way the waves are pushing you. So the first thing is that a person in their mind has to say, whatever I'm doing, I'm consciously doing. You have to turn off autopilot 100%. And you have to believe that who you are or who you can become is a better version than who you are today. And I think a lot of people think that when they hit a certain milestone in their life, then their life will somehow be different. Well, when I get married, then all of a sudden I'll be calm or then I'll learn how to not spend so much money. And when I have children, then this is going to happen. They think that automatically by progressing into the next stage of their life or the next age in their life, then something's going to change. The reality is that that's not the case. If a person doesn't take ownership over their life, then their life is going to happen without them necessarily realizing it. And what's interesting is that when I sit with people, I hear from a lot of people the words, well, I didn't choose that or I didn't want that. Things that they did, they say, well, I didn't want that or I never decided that when they clearly decided it. But I didn't want to marry him, but you married him, right? Yeah, but I didn't want to. Well, you did. Well, I didn't want to. Well, you, you did because he said, will you marry me? And you said, yes. Yeah, but I was getting pressure. So the pressure is what somehow was be, took over your will. And then the pressure is what made your life what it became today. That's not a good way to live your life. A person has to take ownership over their life. And by taking ownership over their life, then the decisions that they make will be very focused decisions. I remember that when I was in ninth grade, I did not learn too much. <laughs> I'll say it like that. I didn't learn too much. Um, to the point where after Pesach in Yeshiva, they used to give a, a test on everything that you were supposed, supposedly that you learned the whole year. And when I took that test, I remember with Rachmanus, I got a 16 on that test. And that was really Rachmanus, meaning I, I literally didn't know what was going on. The next year I took the test again. I don't remember if I got a 13 or a 23, but I remember it ended with a three and it was extremely low, okay? And I remember that those first two years of high school basically being 50% of my high school career. And, and it, was, it was like, okay, you know, like this is what's going on. And if you would have asked me at the time, why is this happening? I had a lot of good reasons why this was happening. I didn't have a good chavrusa and... And, and my class wasn't as motivated and I didn't like the Rebbeim did this. And I had like a million reasons like why my life was a pitiful failure at the time. Okay. But, and, and I, I would just say like, yeah, they, you know, it is what it is. You know, like this is what it is. And I remember that in the first, first day of 11th grade, we had like orientation. And then at orientation, you walk down the block to a new building. They had two buildings, the old building and the new building. And you walk from the old building to the new building. And it was supposed to be like the new building is where the base Medrash is. And this is where the 11th grade and then 12th grade and base Medrash. This is where that building is. And I remember sitting in orientation. It was like the last time, I guess, that I would be sitting in this old building with the younger kids, I'll call it, you know, like the kindergarten through 10th grade. And we finished orientation and we started walking down the block. And I remember like as I was walking down the block thinking to myself, wow, like 50% of my high school career is over. And I literally can't tell you which Masakta I learned the last two years. And I don't know if you could relate to that, but that's like being in college for two years and not knowing what courses you're taking, okay? Like literally, okay? So I remember thinking to myself that I'm going to make two changes in my life this year. 
One is any Musr schmooze that somebody gives, I'm going to make pretend that they're talking to me because they probably are, okay? That was the first thing. They probably are talking to me and I should stop giving excuses why they're not talking to me. The second, the second thing I made up was no matter what happens this year, I'm going to take ownership over my learning. I'm not, I don't care who my Rebbe is. I don't care who anybody is. I, I'm like, I'm taking, I'm taking ownership over my year this year. I'm going to have a great year. It doesn't matter what happens this year. And I left the dining room area. I started walking down the block. And as I was walking down the block, a friend of mine was walking down the block. And I noticed that the wheels were like spinning by him. Now, I don't know exactly what his grades were in ninth and 10th grade, but I assure you they were within a couple of points of my grade in ninth and 10th grade. I, I assure you. <laughs> and I remember as we were walking, I... I turned to him, I said, what's going through your mind right now? And he said, I don't know. It's, it's like, I said, you want to be my chavrusa this year? So he said, what type of chavrusa are you looking for? I said, I'm looking for a chavrusa that no matter what life throws at us, this year is going to be a bomb year. He said, yeah, that's what I'm looking for also. And that year, honestly, was probably the first of a series of moments in my life where I would say my life literally took a, le- a right-hand turn. I don't want to call it a left-hand turn, a, right- a right-hand turn, no question. It was that moment standing on the street. I remember exactly where I was, but that decision to stop letting all of life's winds and, and just everything that life throws at you, just stop, stop. Take control of your life and take control of your decisions. Own your decisions, own your decisions. Realize that if you're in the driver's seat of your life, you can get somewhere. But if you're in the passenger seat, it's wherever life takes you, that's where you're going to end up. So that's the first thing, okay? Second thing is that, the size of your success in any area of your life, whether it's in your relationships, whether it's with your parents, your children, your business, the size of your success is directly linked to the size of your goals. So a lot of people, they think that success happens by mistake. And this is in all areas. I'll talk relationships because I think that's something that I you know, deal with a little bit. There, there are people who their whole concept of their marriage is so small. I've heard people say, um, I just want somebody that I'm not going to fight with. I recently heard somebody somebody who is on the brink of getting engaged. He said, I, I just want this girl is good enough for me to not fight with her. Like that's basically, I said, that's it? That's your criteria? He said, yeah, most, that's how most people are, aren't they? They said, well, I think that your whole concept, your whole vision is so low that your bar is so low that you're settling for something that is so pitiful. And I guarantee you, if that is your bar in your relationship, then chances are you're going to fight a lot because your relationship is going to be so small and so fragile, so pitiful that you almost have no chance of being successful. If a person shoots for 100, then you might get to 90. A person shoots for two. You're almost like, what are you even working with? You have nothing to work with. So the first idea is that you have to take responsibility for your life. The second thing is when you have a vision or a goal for something, try to think a little bigger than you're thinking right now. The example that is given is a guy who's sitting outside panhandling outside a convention center. And as people walk by, they always say, excuse me, sir, do you have any spear change? That's what they say, right? Do you have any spear change? So this guy was walking by one of these guys and he said, he bent down and he said, let me tell you something. Stop asking people for spear change because spear change takes a very long time to add up. Instead, ask people for $5. And then he went into the convention center. And then when he came out, the guy said, I made more today than I made in a month. Because spear change, first of all, most people don't have spear change, right? Change is change. Most people walk around with bills, right? And even if you get 
a hundred nickels, right? It takes a hundred people to give you a hundred nickels. Whereas one person throws in a $5 bill because you asked him for a $5 bill. Now you made $5 in two seconds. And this guy said, I literally made in three hours more than I made in the last month. Our, our concepts, our vision, our goals are very much linked to our vision. If our vision is small, your success will be small. If your vision is big, then you have a very good chance of being successful in a bigger way. That's number two. Number three is don't sit in negativity, fears, and anxiety. So negative thoughts, our brain throws at us negative thoughts. And I think it's important to recognize that negativity is important in our life, meaning anxieties are important in our life because our, our body is programmed with smoke alarms. And that's really all emotions are. Emotions and fears are really just smoke alarms, which tell us that something might be might not be okay. If you're giving a big speech or if you're dating a guy and you're meeting his parents, anything that's big in your life, there's a natural fear. There's a natural feeling in your stomach, in your head, in your mind, in your emotion that says like, oh my gosh. What I think a lot of people tend to do is either sit in those fears. So they talk to their friend like, oh my gosh, I'm so nervous. Like, yeah, I'm also so nervous. Everyone just like starts sitting in those fears as if it's going to do something by talking about it. Or they become so debilitated from those fears that they're like, I don't know, I'm so scared. And then they don't act on whatever it is that they need to act. I, I, I've mentioned this in the past. My first date that I ever went on, not with my wife, um, I pull up to the house five minutes early and then I drove away from the house because I was, I was scared of going on a date. I was literally petrified. Like, how could I go on a date sitting next to a girl? It, the whole realization of the situation hit me like a ton of bricks. And I remember I drove away from the house. I was like, I can't do this. There's no way in the world. Like, I can't go on a date with somebody. And then I was parked like a few blocks from the house. And it was a good thing I was early because I had to gather my thoughts. And then I remember thinking to myself, well, if I don't show up to this date, then I'm probably not going to get another date. You can't just not show up to a date. It doesn't work that way. So I drove back to the house and I went on the date. But I remember I was literally shaking before I went to the date. And I think that a lot of our gut reaction to a lot of things is just, is just fight or flight. And for a lot of people, it's flight. It's they don't take that next job interview, that next step, whatever the case might be, or there's a fear of failure. And the idea is, is that within our life, because we have these smoke alarms, what happens with those smoke alarms is just something for us to investigate. Is this toast that's burning or is this a five alarm fire? And I think when you start to look into whatever it is that your body is trying to tell you about, when you're able to settle that fear, you're almost able to reset the smoke alarm. Does that make sense? You're able to reset the smoke alarm. Like, thank you. I appreciate it. And now I'm able to move on with my life. What I find happens to most people, because when we're children, we get that smoke alarm tripped. The way that we learn to deal with that is almost like panicking and just running straight into the wall. A lot of people, that's how they process their emotions. They go like, ah, bam, and they just run into the wall. Because as children, what happens when somebody steals your camera, two seconds later, you steal their camera. And then a minute later, they throw your phone off from the second floor to the first floor. And then a minute later, you throw theirs from the second floor to the first floor. Right? That's what happens, right? Why? Because the way that our brains are programmed is emotion hits, boom, all of a sudden we have to just panic. Whereas in a fire, that wouldn't be a very smart thing to do. In our lives, it's not a very smart thing to do. When that smoke alarm goes off, investigate figure out what it is. And when you usually understand what your body is trying to warn you, it usually will settle down and that alarm will usually go away. That's number three. Number four, 
There are absolutely no shortcuts to success in life. No shortcuts. And I think that most of our lives, if you are on the world of social media, you are inundated with people who are trying to flaunt their successes to you as if this is something that you can, well, as if it's real. But even if it is real, it's almost as if like, hey, by the way, just by X, Y, and Z, you'll be able to achieve this. And it's like, no, you will not. Success takes a long time. And people who actually achieve anything that's meaningful in life, it takes a long time. It's putting one foot in front of the other. And there are absolutely no shortcuts to success. There aren't. Even people who do have a shortcut, they won the lottery, for example. Do you know that most people who win the lottery, very high statistics, 80, 90% of people are totally bankrupt within a couple of years of winning the lottery. They lose their entire families. They emotionally are not big enough to handle this amount of money. They're not. And therefore, it totally ruins most of their lives. They, lo they lose their relationships. They, don't, they, they go on spending, crazy spending sprees. They buy crazy houses and yachts. They don't understand this has maintenance. This has you know, monthly mortgage. They, they don't understand any of these things. They don't understand money. They just jump right into it. There's almost no shortcut in life that will get you to success. Success is a ladder that has to be climbed. And this works with knowledge. Could be dafyami. You have to learn it every single day. You have to put in the hours. You have to burn the midnight oil. It's only by really, really taking the time to acquire something that you actually have it. And if you think you just get it overnight, you absolutely will not have it. I know somebody very close to me who attended college for a number of years. I forgot if it was four years or five years or six. I forget exactly how long it was. It was a very long time. This person attended college. He, his dream was to become a lawyer. And when he got to law school, there was a lot of people that were studying and really putting in the time. And he fell in with a certain crowd that was teaching him all the ins and outs, the tricks of like how to get through law school without putting in any effort whatsoever. So he came to his tests. They figured out, wink, 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 wink. They were, I don't want to call it cheating, but they were bypassing the traditional way of taking examinations. And this guy made it through law school. He even got a degree for you know, achieving such high grades on his exams. And his life seemed to be just perfectly fine until he actually had to sit down for the bar. And if you know anything about taking either the bar, the CPA exam, or the boards for medicine, the way that it works in many of these places, when you walk in, they literally pat you down. You can't wear a watch. They check your glasses. It's, it's, it's a very secure environment. You can't just walk in and start like looking under your sleeve. It doesn't work that way. No phones, no nothing. They have a camera right on top of you and they have a proctor standing right you know, over your, over your shoulder just looking to make sure that you're not cheating. And this person spent about another five years trying to pass the bar, but he couldn't because he absolutely didn't have any of the information that was necessary to pass. There's no shortcuts. It's very nice. This guy has on his wall a huge plaque. He has a master's in law. Beautiful. Very nice. He has right next to it he got accepted into this special society of people who got 99s or above on all their exams. That's beautiful. You know what he doesn't have next to it? He's not a lawyer. <laughs> That's what he doesn't have. Okay? There are absolutely no shortcuts in life. If a person doesn't put in the time, then it just, it just absolutely doesn't work. Okay? So that is number four. Number five is that almost in everything in life, you will fail. And failure is a part of success. And if you're scared of failure, then you will just not succeed because there's nobody who achieved anything great in life that didn't fall a number of times. I remember my friends and I went a bunch of years ago to Montreal. I think we were 
I'm going to guess 17 or 18 years old. I think we were 17. And we went to Montreal in the winter for a skiing trip. After that, we decided we're not, nobody here is going to marry anybody from Montreal because it snowed like six feet in six days. It was like every five minutes was just like another foot, another foot, another foot. If you're from Montreal, um, Hashem should bless you with success in all of your ways. I just, I, they must have gotten there probably like right after Pesach time when they decided that it was a good place to settle. Like, yeah, this is a beautiful place to stay until they realized the next uh, winter that, you know, winter starts like September 1st and it lasts until April 39th. Uh, and it just snows every five minutes. But I'm not making fun of Montreal. Just our experience there was a lot, a lot, a lot of snow. So we were in Montreal and we went skiing and we had a nighttime skiing and then the daytime. We got like a 24 hour pass. And the people from Montreal, were expert skiers because the mountains in Montreal are like a hundred times bigger than they are here in New York or Pennsylvania or whatever. Um, but the New Yorkers who had never been skiing before, we were like, you guys, maybe you'll show us what to do. They said, yeah, no, no big deal. It's just pizza, pizza and French fries, right? That's what they say, pizza and French fries. So as you go down the mountain, you just make pizza. And then when you want to go fast, you just do French fries and everybody's happy. Now it sounds very simple on paper, but when we got there, they told us that there's a bunny slope open and then all the blue mountains, the green mountains, which are the easier and then the intermediate, those are all closed tonight. But but the black the black diamond and the double black diamond, those are open tonight. Now in Montreal, black diamond, I kid you not, it's literally a cliff that goes straight down. And then the double black diamond is a cliff that has, I think they call them moguls. Are you guys familiar with this? Moguls? It basically looks like an upside down um, like an upside down egg tray. So it's basically, it's a cliff. And then in the middle of the cliff, there's these like massive mountains. So, like as you go over, you get like airborne. It's insane. It's insane. So we, we got all got onto the thing. And as we're going up, the thing is going up and up and up and up and up. It's like a half hour ride to the top of this mountain. And us, like us New Yorkers are like looking, we're like looking, we're really like in panic. And some of, some of the New Yorkers, said like, oh, we'll just wait on the on the ski lift and we'll just come back down the ski lift. No big deal. We'll get up and we'll go back down. But as they got all the way up to the top, there was a guy standing there and he said, no, you can't go back down. There's only one way down the mountain, on the mountain. So he made everybody get off. So they all had to jump off and we're all standing on top. And all the New Yorkers are saying to each other, there's no way, like we're looking at these cliffs. You can't get down this cliff. And all the guys from Montreal were like, yeah, we're going skiing. So a few of them just took off. They were so excited. <laughs> and and us New Yorkers were like, oh, somebody teach us. What do we do? And the guy's like, no big deal. Just pizza and french fries, pizza and french fries. So a few of my friends, so we all went down the first thing. And the guys from Montreal realized they had to slow down because it just wasn't going to work. Um, and then after like the first little mountain that went down, the first little cliff, we were all basically dead. Um, so, so a few of my friends said, they're just going to sit on their skis and they're just going to slide down the mountain. Okay. So that was their way of literally getting down the mountain. They sat down, um, with or without cigarettes. I can't ex exactly tell you. Um, and they were just basically slowly bumping down the mountain just, just to get to the bottom, whatever. It took one guy like five hours just to get down the mountain. Okay. <laughs> Me, I told one of the guys, I said, listen, it's very clear that this is very dangerous. It's also very clear that this could be a lot of fun if you learn how to regulate the pizza and ice cream situation. So I'm going to I'm going to ask you the following. 
I got, I got had a ski. That's not the hard part. Okay. It's pizza and ice cream. You just have to figure out what I'm sorry, pizza and French fries, pizza and French fries. I'm, my menu's all mixed up. Okay. So pizza, pizza and French fries. I got it. But what I don't get is when you fall, how do you, how do you get back up? Because this first cliff that we fell off of, literally as you fall, your skis go in one direction, your poles go in another direction, your hat goes in a third direction, your gloves go in another direction. You're, you're basically standing there and whatever you can grab onto and your clothing is all around the mountains. I said, I don't really hear how to ski. That part I'll figure out. I need you to teach me how to get up. And it turns out, it turns out that it's, it's actually, it's not easy to get up on a mountain that's sideways and your stuff is just sliding down the mountain. It's not easy to get back up. Sometimes you only have one ski on. Sometimes you have to crawl back up the mountain and get your glove. So one of the guys sat with me and he taught me on the next thing, how to fall. And more importantly, how to get back up. And I think that a lot of people in our lives were scared of the failing. And it's really a part of life is failing. But learning to have the resolve to get back up, to stand up in your life, and then take the next risk is, is an integral part of life. People say, I'm going to start the family tomorrow, and then a week later, they fail. Okay, part of life. People say, I'm going to change as a husband. And then a week later, they make a mistake. They do something. They say something. They forget to do something. That is a natural part of life. We're human and as humans, we fail. We make mistakes. But a smart person says it's okay. It's a natural part of life to fail. And because you failed, it means that at least you're trying. And if you keep trying, eventually you're going to become successful. By the way, I learned how to ski on that trip. And I had an awesome, I was black and blue from head to toe. Literally black and blue from head to toe. I, I thought a few times I was going to end up on one of those uh, snowmobiles where they carry you down the mountain after flying into a tree. Um, it, cause it was like really scary, but m- most of my friends did, uh, did not know how to ski at the end of that trip. They literally took them all night to sit on their skis and make it to the bottom. And then they got to the bottom. They said, oh, this was such a stupid trip. And I had a great time the whole night we were skiing. And then the next day we skied again. And these guys just, they did nothing. They had a terrible trip. But I had an awesome trip. And then after I got married, my wife's family's from Scranton and they live right near Montage Mountain, which is skiing. And my wife said, oh, I know how to ski. This is a side point over here. This has nothing to do with uh, 18 things that will change your life. But my wife said, oh, I know how to ski. And right after we got married, um, we went to, this, to the slopes. And it turns out that my wife did not know how to ski. Okay, She thought she knew how to ski, but she did not know how to ski. There's actually an art form to skiing. You don't just, don't just French fries down the mountain. You'll kill yourself. That is absolutely the wrong way to ski. When you ski, you don't go straight. You'll kill somebody or you'll kill yourself. You, you, <laughs> you have to know how to zigzag down the mountain and that's really the art of skiing. That was what I learned on the Black Diamonds in Montreal. And when I went skiing with my wife, my wife just pointed French fries down the mountain. We're flying down the mountain. She hit one of those little bumps and her shape went in one direction and her skis went in another direction. And that is the true story that we have a picture of. <laughs> okay. So, yeah. So learning how to do things right um, is an integral part of life. So that's number one. Makshava. <coughs> Excuse me. Makshava is your mindset. And if you prepare your mindset in a bigger way than you had it before, then you can be successful. Now, the next thing is Dibur. And when it comes to speech, I think there's how many things here? About five things which are, are very common. Number one is a lot of people say, I can't. Okay, they say, I can't. Why can't they? Because they've limited themselves um, in, in what they think they can do without even actually putting in the effort to do it. So I think a lot of people say, I can't based on a lot of things. I don't have the time. I don't have the skill. I don't have the ability. But... That, that's not true. A person does have the ability 
to to at least try. And we have to stop saying, I can't do something and realize that capacity is actually not just a mindset, but it's, it's a willingness for something to happen. I don't want to get into a lot of details, but my wife once taught somebody and, and I was dealing with somebody who was having a bit of an issue in their marriage. And I want to try to think how to word this in a way that maybe will encapsulate the idea. I told this guy, I said, you know, I understand that your wife doesn't drive on the highway. Okay. Use that as an example. I understand your wife doesn't drive on the highway. You will know that your marriage is flourishing when your wife is driving, of course, within speed limits, right? Let's call it 70 miles an hour with the music up and the windows down. When you can bring your marriage to that point that you're sitting in the passenger seat and your wife, who's driving now like white knuckle, you know, old lady, like, you know, like this, like when she's driving on the highway with the windows down and the music up at, let's call it 70 miles an hour within speed limit. Yeah. That's when you're no, that's when you know your marriage is going to be successful. And this guy was like, I don't see what that has anything, anything to do with my marriage. Like, what does one have to do with the next? And the answer is, is that a lot of people, their, their brain is a very limited and restrictive mind. And because of that, the way that they deal with a lot of things in life is like that. Could you do this report? I can't, I can't. Why can't you? I, I've never did that. I was never good at writing. You hear people say that all the time. They give you a reason right off the bat why they can't do something. When somebody learns to expand themselves, you can't drive, now you could drive. Now you're a great driver, now you're driving on the highway. It just expands who you are. It expands your brain. So many people live their lives with this concept of I can't. And the first idea within Dibor is to say the words I can. And if you can't do it right now, you eventually will learn the skill or they'll get the ability to be able to do it. So many people live their whole lives. Oh, that was never me. I'm not the type of person. We say that in so many different areas of life. Oh, I'm not so empathetic. Oh, I don't know how to talk so nicely. Oh, I, I was never good at vocabulary. But stop saying I can't. The only reason you can't is because you never really applied yourself to those things. If you do apply yourself to almost anything in your life, you will find that that thing will expand. Your capacity will expand. The first idea is to stop saying I can't and to start saying that I can. Number seven is that a lot of people, they, they truly believe that they can't because they say I'm not smart enough and I'm not talented enough. And if you look around at the world, there are so many people who have incredible amounts of talent and so many different areas of life. And people say, well, yeah, that person is, is naturally the way that they are. And usually, by the way, they're not. If you know anything about music, yes, certain people are born with just incredible voices. But there are many, many people who became tremendously good singers based on years and years of vocal training and control. Artists, some people are born, yes, 100%. But even those who are born have to spend many hours, really years, of learning to hone their craft. So the first thing is just very, very simple, is stop saying I can't. And the second thing is stop saying I don't have the ability. Like to truly believe that you don't have the ability, you do have the ability. I'll give you an example. When somebody says I'm not smart enough, I'll say it even worse than that. I think a lot of people get married thinking that their spouse is not smart enough. Many men tend to think that their wives are just simply not as intelligent as they are because they learn Gemara all day and they're very logical. And a lot of women get married and they think that their husband's not emotionally intelligent like they are. They go, oh, men are like cavemen. They walk out of the out of the base medrash with like a, like a club and, and he just walks around and he goes, me want food, you know, like as if like that's how men operate. That's not the case. Men have a lot of emotion and women have a lot of intelligence. 
And I think that there's a lot of different types of talents and there's a lot of different types of intelligences, if that's a word. Yeah? There's lots of types of intelligences. Yeah? And therefore, if a person would expand their mind to understand that instead of saying, I, I truly can't, like it's just not within my ability, if you apply yourself to something, you'll find that your world will drastically expand. Number eight is that a lot of people think that it's just based on their position in life or perhaps their age, that they're not able to do whatever it is. A lot of people say, well, yeah, if I was a 60-year-old man, then people would respect me. Or if I was an 18-year-old you know, guy who had all this energy, then maybe I could. And if I had the freedom, we have like all these reasons why we've isolated like that we cannot do something. I remember when I was learning by Rabbi Berkowitz, I was learning a Kyle, and Rabbi Emanuel Feldman came to speak. Rabbi Emanuel Feldman, he, his Chavrusa back in the day, was Rabbi Noah Weinberg. Yeah, Rabbi Noah Weinberg was his Chavrusa. And Rabbi Noah went to Israel to start founding, he found many yeshivas. I think he found five different yeshivas. And his Chavrusa, Rabbi Emanuel Feldman, decided he's going to go out and do Kirov in Atlanta, which was a total midbar as far as Yiddishkeit was concerned. And Rabbi Noah told him, he said, listen, we were Chavrusas. If you're going out there, I ask you, make sure every day you sit down and you learn and you have your Siddharam. And he said, well, you know, they had like a conversation. And he said, basically, every day you should put down a Coke bottle. And if the Coke bottle doesn't move, then you don't move. That was Renach's directive to him. And he said, every day he came and he sat and he learned. And he eventually turned over the entire Atlanta. And he was telling us about his whole life story. There's a, there's a book called um, The Shul Without a Clock. That's based on him. He has many books that he wrote for the Emmanuel Feldman. Just an incredible, incredible, incredible man. And I remember as he was talking... He was saying how he was in his 80s and he retired and he's living in Eretz Yisrael. So I went over to him after and I said, Rabbi Feldman, that was incredible. I mean, you changed over the whole Atlanta to what it became today. That's amazing. I said, but me, I think at the time I was 22 years old. I said, I'm being told that I should become an assistant rabbi. I'm 22 years old. Who's listening to a 22-year-old guy come in and give his like view on world events? Who, who cares what this 22-year-old has to say? And the memory told me, he said, I want you to know that every single age has a myla that a different age doesn't have. It also has a chasaran. But you should know that the age that you have is the age that's where Hashem wants you to be. So if you're a 22-year-old, you're younger, you have more energy, you're with the times, you can relate to people, you can go jogging with people, you can play sports with people, you can relate to them in a way that a 75-year-old man can't. So he said, understand that your job that you're going to get, they're not expecting you to be 85 years old. They're expecting you to be 22 years old. And if you own that up, then it will allow you to expand the success in the area that you apply yourself. And that was exactly what happened when we took our job. I used to go running with people. We'd play ball with people. We'd go to the park with people. It was a way of interacting with people that other people in the shul weren't able to do. They just didn't have that rapport with them just simply based on our age. So that was something which, you know, very smart piece of advice. Every every area of life that you're in, you find that it has its myla. If you're younger, technology is going to be your best friend, right? You're able to apply yourself. So many areas of our life, we say that we are not in the right stage of life, but you actually are. Number nine is don't compare yourself to other people in life. Don't be intimidated by their successes or their failures and learn from them what works and what doesn't. I remember Zana Shabbaton and I was sitting there on Friday and we were sitting by the like Tayameha area, like where people were eating. And this guy sat down and he turned to me and he said, Aren't you an accountant? I said, Yeah. He said, he said, Can I give you a piece of advice? 
I said, yeah. And he said, I've been running my accounting firm for, I think he said 40 years. And he says, I hate accounting. <laughs> and it's interesting because I heard that from a lot of accountants. I don't know why. <laughs> I hate accounting, man. I hate it. So I said, really? So how'd you stick it out for 40 years? So he said, many years ago, I switched from working in my business to on my business. And then we were schmoozing and then he left. And those words really stuck with me. I switched from working in my business to on my business. It's a brilliant piece of advice. Instead of being here and being here, I'm having a different view, vantage point in life. And it's not just the concept of seeing your business as a whole, which is its own, it's a, that's its own book. It's the concept of a guy gives you a small little insight and that changes literally the whole process of your business. So when you deal with other people, a lot of people look at people, they're either jealous or they just talk about them and they just have this mundane way of relating to people, but realize that a lot of people have a tremendous amount of chachma that if you scratch the surface, it will enhance your life. Which brings me to number 10, which is ask for help and embrace criticism. And I think this is, you know, that day in 11th grade when I was walking down the, down the street and I was saying every Muslim Shmuz is directed at me. I think this was this idea. You know, people have so much to offer you, so much to offer you. The concept of criticism, I think when we're younger, we hate when our parents tell us what to do. Yeah, a little bit. Yeah, I don't know. I think so. Um, but the reality is that, you know, the people who guide us in our life from the beginning of time, the concept of the Nevi'im, the concept of parenthood, the concept of Rabbanim, the concept of really being a good friend is looking at your friend and being able to help them achieve something bigger in their life than they currently are achieving. So the people who love you and the people who care for you, when they have something to say that will help you change the trajectory of your life, I think that that is probably one of the smartest things that a person can do is embrace criticism. Um, I, I, I recently called Shimon Koyako from Torah anytime. I said, Shimon, give me some criticism. So he said, yeah, you want to hear? I said, I want to hear. So we had like a good hour schmooze on the phone. And I, I was very impressed that he took the time to talk to me. But here you have a guy who is probably the world's biggest Rosh Hashiva to ever exist. You know, 20 million hours of Torah learned on his platform. And he took the time to like delve into my classes and then pick them apart and give me insight. That That's invaluable information. I mean, you could spend years trying to find somebody who knows that level of insight. And that that was greatly, greatly appreciated. So ask for help and embrace criticism, which brings us to the last part of this class, okay? Which is MISA, which is action, okay? First thing, which is very simple, is start your engines purposefully, not by rote. And I think this really goes back to the first mindset, which is that a lot of people in their brain, they just go through life. But this concept is that action breeds confidence and it breaks up fears, which mostly live in your mind. And I think that the the, the biggest distance in the world is the gap between that is the biggest gap in the world. It's the distance between the things that we know and the things that we actually do. When a person does something, they put, they pound the pavement they work with their hands or their feet and they actually do something, that's when you start to actually feel tangible results, okay? So that's number one. It's really number 11 in, within this whole thing, but the number one in action, which is start your engines purposefully and don't live in your head. L live alive. Put, put something into action. You have an idea, do something about it, okay? Number 12 is don't wait until conditions are perfect because they never will be. We're always going to have a reason why it's not a good time to start something, but... If you start something right now, within three months, you'll see a drastic, a drastic change. I remember a couple of times that I started like exercising or running 
Um, there's this app called Strava, which tracks all your exercises. If you're into exercising, called Strava. It's a great app. And I remember a thousand times I started this. I'm going to become a biker. That was like one dream. <laughs> then it became too cold. So then I'm not doing biking. Then it became warmer. So then I am doing biking. Then it became too hot. <laughs> so then I'm not doing biking. You know, I had like, like it's, it's, it's uh, stages. And if you watch like my progress on Strava, it's like, up and down. If you try to befriend me on Strava, I will decline because it's embarrassing. But 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 Strava is a good, great way for you to see your your actual output of what you're doing in your life. A lot of times we have our reasons why it's not going to work, but we put our we put something into action and then it falls apart. But stop waiting for things to be perfect because they never actually are going to build to, to be. The next thing is number thirteen was have a long term focus but short attainable goals. And this is something which you've heard me talk about a thousand times. Short attainable goals, which are simple to articulate. I think this is really, really, really important, which are simple to articulate. I'm sure you're familiar with the name Ben Shapiro. Ben Shapiro talks about how when he was starting his company, he needed a, I believe it was $5 million investment. And they pitched it to a, no, a number of people and they were turned down. And he had one meeting with somebody that he really, really, really believed that this person can fund them and would back them and got what he was trying to do in the world of conservative jur journalism. And he sat down with this guy and he had his partner and his partner is giving the guy a whole stickle tire how like we have this figured out and we're going to make a ton of money. And he's giving him like all the stats and all the statistics. And the, he could see like this guy's like slowly, like just like dozing off into the sunset. So Ben Shapiro stood up and he turns to the guy, he goes, I'm going to make this really simple for you. And he takes out a pen and he goes like this. He, he puts up money. Okay. Then he makes a line and he makes a picture of like a film of like a video. Okay. I don't know how to do that. Okay, he makes like a play button. Okay, then he goes revenue. Okay, revenue. And then he makes a line from the revenue back to the money. And he goes, this is our model. We're going to make a lot of money. And the guy's like, oh, okay. <laughs> I, I got that. That makes sense. And the guy backed him. And as of last year, they did over $100 million in revenue on his, on his platform. Over $100 million from this one little graph. Okay. A lot of times in life, we overcomplicate everything. Well, in order for me to be a good wife, I have to this, I have to feel that, and then she has to do this, and he has to do that. You have a thousand things that get in the way of us actually doing something. But the reality is that if you put it pen to paper and say, what is my short attainable goal? You, you're guaranteed to start seeing something different than you saw yesterday because you're doing something different than you did yesterday. Number 14 is to add value to yourself and everyone around you. I think a lot of times in our life, we think that whatever we were hired to do or whatever our role that we defined in our mind to do, that's what we're going to do. So we just do it because, yeah, that's my vision of whatever it is. But if you're in a company, your company has a thousand needs that were not articulated to you during your job interview. I, I deal with couples all the time where they say, but when we were dating, we said this. Yeah, you may have said this, whatever this is, but oftentimes life changes with you. And if you are able to adapt and just say, how do I make the things around me successful in whatever way that they need to be? That is really the, the essence of a, of a great leader. I've mentioned here a couple of times when I was a kid, I was very hooked on this idea of the Navy SEALs. This was probably around the ninth and 10th grade. I don't know if you see any correlation between my life at that stage. Um, but I was very hooked on this concept of, of like people who were able to achieve just what seemed to be almost impossible physical feats. And I would read books about them and all these things about like, how people would become so great in this area. And it was like my dream of becoming a Navy SEAL. My wife laughs at that a lot. And uh, I very much understand where she's coming from because, I, you know, 
whatever. But but <laughs> but but in those days, it, it seemed like a very logical goal in my life that one day I was gonna perhaps you know maybe not join the seals, but like at least you know emulate them in different ways. So anyways, so I was I was reading this book, and it was a very fascinating read on this this group, and they put them all together. I think it's like hundred or two hundred seal uh, seals people who are trying out. And then they slowly whittle them down to like 20 or 30 that make it through all the training. It's called BUDS, Basic Underwater Demolition and SEAL Training. And that is the, the training that they go through. And there was this one group, this one team that there was, there was the team and the, the people who were overwatching them, they noticed that the, the group that they had, they had their alpha guys, the guys that would, you know, if they, if they had a, a sprint or a run, these guys would come in first every time. But they also noticed that there was one guy who was not the best, but as they were running, if he noticed that like some guys were dragging behind, he himself would slow down. He would go over to the guy. He would say, he would grab his, his backpack and he would start like pulling him up to the front. He'd be like, come on, let's go, let's go. Like, let me help you out over here. If they had to pick up, they, they would pick up these massive logs over their head and they like pick them up and down, put them on their shoulder, go to the other side. Very fascinating stuff. It really builds your intelligence. Um, so, so like as they would do this, this guy, it was always making sure that, are you good? Are you okay? Did you have what to eat? Did you drink? Are you comfortable? You want to move to the front, to the back? And they took note of this guy and they made him into the, the leader. Ultimately, when he graduated, he became like one of the leaders in the sale community. And they said it wasn't because he was the best. It really wasn't. It was the fact that he brought, he brought up the people around him. And I think if you want to isolate what it means to be in a relationship and be successful in a relationship, is that you look at the people in that relationship and you say, how do I bring them up? How do I focus on them? How do I focus on their core needs? And how do I actually give it to them? And I think that a lot of people in their minds, they're great mothers, they're great mother-in-laws, they're great grandmothers, they're great friends, they're great in their mind because why not? In your mind, it's very easy to give yourself an award. I find this very interesting that politicians and actors like in different communities, they have, it's almost like politicians, they have like their their stars. If you notice this uh President Obama did this. He gives out like the Presidential Medal of Freedom, right? So he's giving a political award to who? To his vice president and to his chief of staff and to his friends and his neighbors and his celebrities. It's almost like we've created this award and then we pat each other on the back. And then next time it's your turn and you'll give me the award, right? <laughs> Actors do the same thing. Like we all vote for you. The next year you'll vote for me. And like we feel very hush of that we each gave each other an award. It's like so beautiful. In our minds, we're able to achieve anything because, yeah, why not? In our minds. It's really when you put pen to paper and you actually do something different in your relationship, that's when you actually see something transpire. Now, number 15, we're going to 18. Number 15 is look for the next platform and get ready to jump. In our lives, platforms will always appear when you hit the epitome of the success in your life. The simple example I can give you is Rabbi Berkowitz. Rabbi Berkowitz was sitting in the back of the mirror yeshiva and he was known as an expert in halacha from when he was a bacher, and then he got married. And then he was selected to come teach in Iyat, which is the women's program of Eshatera. Then he became, you know, within Eshatera. Then he started the Jerusalem, the Jerusalem Kailo. And then a couple of years ago, he was called to become the Rosh Hashiva of Eshatera, which he accepted. And I think every single person within our lives, whatever you're doing, if, if you're good at it, another platform will come along. And that's when you start to learn to cut out the, the bottom 90%, the small stuff, the stuff that you don't really need to focus on and to focus on the bigger stuff. A person who's successful in one area might be told, okay, now you should become a supervisor. You should become a manager. Drop all the smaller stuff and become the next level that you have. And if a person's ready to take that jump, 
they will take the next leap into the next big picture within their life. Ask yourself if what you're currently doing is big or small and cut out the small things. I think that, again, the way we live most of our lives is, you know, our reactions, our emotions are really, because when we're younger, they're small. For many people, they grow and it becomes small as well. So for example, anger. Anger is small. Gossip is small. Talking about food is small. And there's so many conversations and there's so many actions in our life that are really small. And this goes to the heart of Rabbi Berkowitz's teachings, which is just stop yourself in any area of life and ask yourself, is it big or is it small? Ask yourself, is my davening big or is my davening small? Is the way I deal with my children big or is it small? Am I a big husband or am I a small husband? Am I a big wife or am I a small wife? Every area of your life, you have the the gehaven, the, the uplifting, you have that side of things and you have, okay, you're just getting by with doing it mediocre or small. Ask yourself if what you're doing is big or if it's small and cut out the smaller things. Number 17 is spend time with big people. The right exposure will change your life. I think this is so clear, but the idea of having a rub, having role models is absolutely imperative for our lives. And I'll just share with you a small story. I was once in a Rav's house and the phone rang. And this Rav said to me, he said, I know that you deal with couples. I want you to listen to this phone call. So he, he pressed, you know, he pressed speaker, answered his phone. And I hear somebody on the other end. She goes, let's call him Rabbi Goldstein. You hear her talking very slowly. She goes, Rabbi, 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 Rabbi Goldstein, Rabbi, Rabbi Goldstein. Rabbi Goldstein, Rabbi Goldstein. And I'm watching his face. He's not making any noise, not making any sound. Rabbi Goldstein, Rabbi Goldstein. Rabbi Goldstein, are you there? He's like, yes, I'm here. She's like, okay, okay, okay. I, okay. And she was stuttering through Hershayla. Now, what was Hershayla? Whatever it was. This woman was extremely OCD to the point where her mind literally held her voice hostage. And unless whatever she was saying came out a certain way, she couldn't get through the conversation. It was probably a 25-minute conversation, like phone call, that could have taken under a minute, for sure, maybe 25 seconds. And we hung up the phone, and he didn't even have to say a word to me. But the message of, if you're picking up the phone, you're dealing with somebody, you step into that person's world. That's what it means to deal with people. He like gave me like a whole mustard schmooze just by watching him answer the phone. He was like, I'm Maven Yavin. I think you understand what just happened. It really blew my mind. The sensitivity, being empathetic, listening ear. You didn't rush her. Say, I don't have time for this. What's your Shaila? Put your husband on the phone. What are you doing? Nothing. He was so calm walking through the whole thing. You can imagine this woman, her Shaila, everything also was all about OCD and how she's struggling. The Shaila wasn't even a Shaila. wasn't even a Shaila. It was a Shaila. You said, come on, that's a Shaila? He was so calm. To me, it was a masterclass in being empathetic when you're picking up the phone for somebody. When you surround yourself with big people, it changes you. When you surround yourself with small people, it doesn't change you. Which brings me to the last piece over here, which I, I think is maybe the most important one. Originally, I thought this was the least important. And then I was talking this out with my wife. And I think this is by far and away the most important of all 18. The last one says like this. It says, do new things, try new foods, and go to new places. Doesn't sound like much. Okay? Do new things, try new foods, and go to new places. What does that mean? I think that most of us 
our whole concept of the world, our worldview is very limited. It's limited to what we experienced growing up. I'll call it the chinuch that we had, the friends that we had, the mindsets that we developed, whether it's in our house, in our communities, in our shuls, with our friends. That becomes our entire mindset. Our hashkafas hachayim is limited to that. When a person wants to break out in terms of their Yiddishkeit, when a person wants to achieve the next level within their Yiddishkeit, whether it's in their Avedas Hashem, whether it's with their friends, whether it's in any area, we have to stop thinking that the way that I did things is the way that's right. Why is it right? Of course, Chinuch is very good. Messiah is very good. 100%. I'm not, I'm not limiting it to that. But the concept that in the world, there is so much more than you currently know is I think the olive phase of growth. And yes, it's good to feel confident in whoever you are. 100%. Really important. But to expand your world, to understand that there's a whole wide world out there is so important. I don't want to say which group this is from, but I met a person and he told me he's from a certain group in Kali Yisrael. I don't want to say what they were. Let's, whatever, whatever comes into your mind, that's the one. Okay? And he says, he, this is what he told me. He said he grew up, they used to sing a song in his world, I'll call it. They used to sing that when Mashiach will come, First, he's coming to this group. And then, after they have their, like, Kinesia with Mashiach, then, and only then, he's going to go to other people that are similar to them. And then, and only then, then he's going to go to the other groups until he makes it out, like, to the furthest extreme, like, the more modern, you know, people. That's when those people will be able to, like, speak to Mashiach. But first, it's his group. Then the groups that are a little closer, the ones that they're fighting with each other, they don't talk to each other. But at least they're closer. Then it comes to people that, then basically on how we grade your yahadas, that's how Mashiach is going to greet you. And he said, he, he literally, they have songs and he was singing songs in, in Cheder. This was his songs. Until he met somebody who was not exactly from his group and that you're talking to the guy, and he had such a snide perception on this person. Oh, you! Until he realizes, one second, this guy's actually pretty smart. And they got into a whole conversation, and then he's like, "Wait, like you're not from my group?" The guy's like, "No." He's like, "So, so how, how, like, how do you know anything? Like, how do you know anything? You might, like, you're dumb." He's like, "Excuse me? Yeah, like we were, we sing songs. Like you're dumb." Like, Mashiach's not going to you. He's coming to us first. He had to, like, really reprogram his brain. He said, and now I realize, like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Like, one second. Could we just, like, expand our world a little bit? This guy today is one of, like, he's, he's radiating Abbas Yisrael. He has friends from such a, a wide group of people, and he's involved in Kirov now. Because he realized, like, my whole worldview when I grew up was so myopic. It was so small, it was so narrow, I couldn't, I couldn't tolerate other people, I couldn't even hear other people. And now, for the first time, he's able to see a little bit bigger. I think, unfortunately, so many of us, we grow up that this is how it is, because this is what I saw, and that's it. Hasidus has so much to offer. The Sephardic world has so much richness 
the litvish world i'm saying machshava midas with so much to share with each other it's when somebody thinks small and they think that their way is the only way that's when you start to run into some problems and i want to just end with a machshava and then i want to play a small video for you the machshava is that within our lives i think a lot of people are going through life but they're not truly living to truly live means to be in the driver's seat of your life. To truly live means to be making decisions and owning those decisions, understanding the consequences of your decisions, of your actions, of your thoughts, whether it's in your marriage or with your children or with your Shemina Esrei or with your community. Anything that you're doing in your life that you're just sitting passively and that it's happening like on its own organically and that you didn't actually put effort into, is small. We say this all the time. Hashem wants your heart, whether it's in davening, whether it's in learning, whether it's in machshava, whether it's in any relationship, you have to be present. It's the olive phase of every single relationship. You have to show up. You have to put up. You have to put pedal to the metal. You have to actually do something in those relationships in order for them to be successful. Judaism is a relationship. We've said this a thousand times. Yiddishkeit is a relationship. If our concept of this relationship is small, then our whole life, it stays small. If our concept expands and it's big, then you're truly living. Then you're choosing life. Life is not just happening for you. You're choosing it. You're actively saying, I want this. This is the life that I want. So with that, I want to play with you. I want to play for you a video, which my wife just showed me. And it absolutely blew my mind because I think so many people experience this in their own way. And I would encourage you to think this through, how this applies to your own life. For those of you on Torah Anytime, we are going to play just the words as opposed to showing the video because there's a woman on this. But for those of you on Zoom and who are here, just pay attention to this video and then we'll end this share. מה שקורה עכשיו חמור פי אלף אם אני יצאתי אחרי 12 שנות לימוד בורה לחלוטין לגבי מי אני מאין באתי לאן אני הולכת מה הקולקטיב למה אני פה בכלל בורה לחלוטין לחלוטין היום המצב חמור פי אלף אני קוראת את הנתונים לפיהם רוב מכריע של המורים בישראל טוענים שאין מספיק לימוד או זהות יהודית בבתי הספר, ורוב מכריע של ההורים בישראל טוענים את אותו דבר. אני יושבת פה ואני אומרת בכאב עמוק, רק בגיל מאוחר למדתי שהיהדות היא לא העיקר מתפלל ליד השם כדי שירד גשם, והיהדות היא לא האם מכניסים חמץ לבית חולים בפסח, והיהדות היא לא האם אנחנו נוסעים בשבת או אין תחבורה ציבורית בשבת, היהדות היא דינמית. היא דינמית מטאפיזי, רוחני, לוגי. בקוריאה הדרומית הכניסו את לימוד התלמוד. התלמוד זה חדר כושר ללוגיקה. למה זה נשלל ממני? למה אני לא ידעתי עד גילי המאוחר שהיהדות אומרת לנו שאנחנו לא יצורים גשמיים שעוברים חוויה רוחנית, אלא יצורים רוחניים שעוברים פה כרגע חוויה גשמית. יש בפילוסופיה. יש ברוחניות, יש במדע, היהדות הקדימה את המדע, המדע היום מתקרב ליהדות עד לתפיסת חלקיק האטום. מדובר פה באוצר של ידע גלום, ביהלום, ואתם יודעים למה אנחנו נאלצים לכפות את היהלום הזה? כי אנשים לא יודעים מה יש שם. 
לא יודעים. גדל פה דור אחרי דור בור, ויש לזה משמעות לא רק שכלית ולא רק רוחנית. הזהות הזו, שימו לב מה קורה בעזה, שימו לב מה קורה בחמאס, יש להם כוח אין סופי. הם גאים במוות שלהם, הם גאים בעוני שלהם, הם גאים בסבל שהם עוברים, כי יש להם אללה. לנו גדעו את השורשים מתחת לרגליים. יושבים פה ואומרים לי שהלימוד של היהדות זה מה? ישראליות ויהדות ביחד? קולנוע עברי ישראלי לעומת המלבים, הרמח"ל, הארי הקדוש? אתם יודעים איזה עולמות יש שם? הייתי כל כך צמאה לידע. אחרי 12 שנות לימוד עקרות. כלום! פילוסופיה מטאפיזית, פילוסופיה של הדת, פילוסופיה של המזרח, כאין וכאפס, כלום! אבק! לעומת היהלום שאנחנו יושבים עליו וקוברים אותו! והילדים שלנו לא יודעים מה זה להיות יהודי, אין להם מושג! אני לומדת היום ואני אומרת, אלוהים, אם רק הייתי יודעת את זה, בגיל יותר צעיר, זה חוסן, זה זהות, זה שורשים, זה הכוח להילחם! ממש. אני רואה את החיילים שלנו היום עם הציציות חילונים! עם ספרי תורה חילונים! עם הכיפות והתפילין חילונים! אני רואה את זה ואני רואה איך הנשמה שלהם צמאה לזה, כמה הם כמהים לזה. אני רוצה לומר שישראל צריכה לעשות אתחול מחדש למערכת החינוך. היהדות זה לא האחר הוא אני, או הגישה הפרוגרסיבית למשנה ולתנ״ך. היהדות זה אמת נצחית. אנחנו יושבים על אמת נצחית. אנחנו יושבים על יהלום. והגיע הזמן שננגיש את היהלום הזה, את הידע הזה, את הרוחניות הזאת, שיש בה אנושיות, שיש בה את הבסיס של המוסר האוניברסלי היום. אנחנו הבאנו את זה, ואנשים לא יודעים. גדלים פה ישראלים שחושבים שהזהות שלהם זה שהם אוהבים פיצה. in place where Kali Yisrael was so attacked by various groups. The bottom line is, is that us who grow up in everything, with everything laid out in front of us, I think that it's incumbent on us, it's incumbent on us to take the understanding that you have people now that are fighting so real in Eretz Yisrael and the war Of, she talks about Yahadut, the concept of Jewish identity is such a mohama for so many people and then for so many of us it, it doesn't even cross our mind that often it doesn't even cross our mind like what did I do today in my Yiddishkeit what did I do today that made me feel alive in my Yiddishkeit what is my goals for my Yiddishkeit what is my what is my future like for my Yiddishkeit where do I want to become one day I think for most people yeah, we want to get married settle down have a family it's all beautiful right perpetuating this move along with the waves and it's beautiful it's great but I think that and this is really what I took out from Robert Berkowitz's teaching be bigger be bigger than that have a goal expand yourself out give to your community not just to your family not just to yourself understand that there's a big world out here and a person oftentimes thinks of themselves like oh I'm going to burn out or I don't have enough bandwidth you do you slowly expand yourself you can become so much bigger than you are today If you start to think through the logical steps of what you need to take in your life, you can become so much bigger than you are today. And the bottom line is, is we're going to close off this chapter of Archos Yeshar with just that simple idea. The idea of being Yid means being real with who you are. It means being real with your relationships. It means be, being real with your davening, with your learning. And that's how he ends off the Sefer. He ends off the Sefer here of Taf. Taf is Tfilah and Taira. That's how Rechaim ends it off. Tfilah and Taira. What does that mean? It means in every single area of our life, Are you hadas? If it's real, then, it, then it's real. If it's real, then it grows. It's big. Having that vision, those short attainable goals, 
where we don't lock ourselves into the only thing that we know, if we change ourselves a little bit, then it grows. You attach, like, I see somebody writing over here. Yeah, if you attach yourself to big people, then you're bigger. If you if you think bigger, if you stop being giving reasons and excuses, and I think I'm just going to end with this last thing. I think that for me, of all these 18, it's the concept of taking ownership for your actions. I think that that's where it starts and that's where it ends. And unfortunately, so many of us go through our lives, our lives just almost like happen for us. Take ownership over your emotions. Take ownership over your sadness. Take ownership over your anxiety. Take ownership over your, your marriage. Stop saying it just happened, it just happened, it just happened. It doesn't just happen. When it just happens, it's usually mediocre at best. When you take ownership over it, then it becomes something which grows and it grows and, and, and you're able to see it expand because you're in control of it. You're in control of your emotion. What does masculinity mean? Masculinity means, and I'll share with you a small little thing. It just it struck me not too long ago. Masculinity is the concept of being much more stagnant in your emotions than going up and down. Femininity is the concept of connection, up, down. It's like a small snippet of a snippet of a snippet of marriage. How many people get married thinking like, I'm going to study it? How many people have children and say, I'm going to study what this child needs from me? We go through the motions because that's what we do. We say the words of Shema a thousand times in our life, a thousand times a year. We don't even think about what we're saying. The concept of taking ownership over the things that we have, then those things become real and then we move on to the next thing. That's what it means to be a yid. It means to be alive, to have a real life, a real concept, a real identity as a yid, as she was saying. I think it's, it's really, it's really life-changing. So with that, we're going to put this to a close and Amir Tashem will see you in two weeks with a totally new series. Looking forward. You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.